Turn with me to Psalms chapter 42 and 43. Pastor Ken had the opportunity to preach in Scotland today, uh, and I believe they're about five hours ahead, so you've missed your opportunity to pray for him, but we trust that went well, and he'll be back with us next week. Also, strange providence that we have on our hands this morning. Today is graduation Sunday, where we celebrate our graduating high school seniors, and also today we turn to one of my favorite topics to preach about, suffering. So nothing quite says celebration like a psalm of lament, right? But I'll bite. I'll take this as a providence. And I know this will be harder for some of you, but think back there with me to that day in your own life. Think back to that time in your own life. Finishing high school, you're standing on the precipice of life before you. 18 years, your parents have sought to raise you, bring you up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And whether it's college or work or a gap year or trade school, or you're still figuring it out, you look out on your life ahead of you and even if you don't know the details, you think you have some idea of how it's going to go. I know I thought I did. I'm headed to Kennesaw State in the fall, major in Spanish, get married, go to seminary, head to the mission field, serve the Lord, raise some kids, teach them to follow Jesus, launch them out, spend my sunset years spoiling some grandkids, and then go to meet Jesus face to face. Before my wife, so I don't have to experience that, so. Everything, though, up and to the right, right? Falling right into place, especially if I walk with Jesus. And maybe it's just me, but if I could go back to 18-year-old me, graduating from Peachtree Ridge, stick a thumb drive in him, and just download one thing to the hard drive, I think it would be this. What will you do when it doesn't go according to plan? And not just when it redirects, but when life takes you through dark valleys, deep pain, undesired crisis, and unexplainable suffering. And worse, what will you do when it seems like God himself has forgotten you and it feels like no relief will ever come? So for our four graduates this morning, I beg of you, give this passage a hearing and let it continue to shape in you an impulse for when the storms of life come. And as you look out ahead, I hope those times for you are far off, and I hope that they're few and far between, but the reality is, is no one will escape them entirely. So I hope that you'll take something from this psalm today to store away in your toolbox for the dark days that will inevitably come. Church, would it not be our unanimous testimony that life doesn't always go according to plan. As one person said, everyone is either coming out of, currently in, or walking into a season of suffering. This is indeed one of my favorite topics to preach on because of this. Some of you are there right now. That's not a word from the Lord, that's good math, okay? Some of you are there right now. Some of you here today know exactly what the psalmist means when he says, my tears have been my food day and night, and when he cries out, why have you forgotten me? 
This is not a recollection for you this morning. This is you right now. So it's one of my favorite topics to preach on because it gives us the opportunity to say, we see you. God sees you. We don't know all that you're going through, but we do know that you're going through it, and we want to come alongside you in any way that we can. Second, because it gives us the opportunity to hold out the life-giving balm of God's word and apply it tenderly to your downcast soul. His word speaks to your condition, and it speaks in a way that will resonate with your pain. As Alec Matier said, this, the book of Psalms is notable for facing, not hiding from life. So my prayer for you this morning, if you're going through that, is that the Holy Spirit would minister to you from the Word of God. And for those of us who aren't walking that right now, my prayer is that he, we would be better prepared and equipped for when we do go through those times, and that we would be better prepared and equipped to walk alongside those suffering in ways that are actually helpful. Before we read Psalm 42 and 43 in their entirety, I think a few preliminary thoughts will help us. Um, I'm taking Psalm 42 and 43 together as one psalm, which is the way I believe that they're intended to be read. There's a couple of reasons for, for doing it that way. Uh, each of the psalms between 42 and 49 has a superscription, the sons of Korah, except for chapter 43, which gives us a clue that Psalm 43 is not a new psalm at all, but really just a continuation of 42. Additionally, Psalm 42 and 43 share significant repetition across them, most notably the refrain that you see in 42.5, 42.11, and in 43.5. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And then they, see a, they have, share a very close repetition again at 42.9 and at 43.2. Thirdly, there seems to be a clear progression from chapter 42 on into chapter 43 that just continues on together fluidly. Which brings us to an outline that I think will serve as helpful signposts as we read together the entirety of 42 and 43. In Psalm 42, 1 through 5, we see the problem introduced. Here we will hear the psalmist as he cries out with absolutely desperate language for the presence of God. We will see that there, there, that as his faith is taunted by outsiders, he longs to be back in Jerusalem near to the unique presence of God in the temple, worshiping together corporately with all God's people. Then in 42, 6 through 11, we see him dealing with the problem. Here we will hear the psalmist as he processes his lament, as he feels crushed by the breakers and the waves, yet is sustained by the love of God. We hear him wrestle in blunt honesty through his questions while dealing with searing pain and the ongoing taunt of outsiders. Then we see a turn in 43, 1 through 5, as he begins to make his request to God for deliverance. And even while his circumstances remain unchanged, we see him turning a hopeful eye to the future, trusting in the goodness of God, even while he remains in the valley. And in all of it, a common refrain runs through as he fights to keep his hope centered on God by talking to himself Repeating over and over, why are you cast down, O my soul? 
and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. As we read following these signposts, we'll see that in the midst of unanswered questions and seemingly unanswered prayers, we must fight to fix our hope on God. Let's read. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep, at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, God, where you speak to us and you teach us how to think rightly about you, how to love you like we should, and how to walk before you like we should. God, I pray that you would help uh, me to preach it faithfully this morning. Lord, I pray that you would be with those who find themselves in a season of suffering. God, I pray from your word, you would minister to their spirit to give them a hope to continue. You would minister by your spirit to give them a hope to continue on. God, for those of us that aren't walking that today, I pray, Lord, that we uh, would be better equipped to walk alongside our brothers and sisters who find themselves in difficult seasons of life. Uh, and God, ultimately, uh, we're reminded as we consider the hope that we have, uh, Lord, we are reminded of those that don't have such hope. And so as we reflect on that hope this morning, Lord, I pray that that would propel us out to share the life-giving message of hope with those around us that don't know you. Uh, Lord, I pray you would do all these things by the power of your word this morning. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Tim Keller speaks to two important sides of coming at the issue of suffering. One, the need to make some deep philosophical sense of it. And then second, the need to just simply survive it. He says, we are all sufferers or will be, but not all of us are currently in an experience of deep pain and grief. Those who are not feeling it but are seeing it in others will have a host of philosophical, social, psychological, and moral questions about it. On the other hand, those who are in the grip of pain and difficulty now cannot treat it as a philosophical issue. While the afflicted person may cry out using philosophical questions, why do you allow such things, God? The real concern is personal survival. How can you survive it? To speak in a detached philosophical manner to an actual sufferer is cruel. And yet the experience of pain leads almost inevitably to big questions about God and the nature of things that cannot be ignored. So there's a real and necessary need to work through deep philosophical things about the problem of suffering, about the problem of evil. And Pastor Matt would love to work through those with you sometime. Um, Our text today deals with the nitty-gritty reality of just being in the midst of suffering and trying to survive. Moreover, the Psalms are given to us as a guidebook to emulate. It's a guidebook to emulate in times like these. By drinking deeply from the Psalms, our hearts can form the habit of right response in times like this. Speaking generally of the Psalms, Christopher Ashe says it this way, The Psalms show us how to express our varied feelings, but more than that, they reorder our disordered affections so that we feel deeper desires for what we ought to desire, more urgent aversion to that from which we need to flee, and a greater longing for the honor of God in the health of Christ's church. The Psalms form within us a richer palette of rightly directed emotions. It is not so much that the Psalms resonate with us, that they shape us so that we most deeply resonate with the God-given yearnings they so movingly express. And so, to that end, I have five ways this passage should form and shape our impulses. First, it's okay to not be okay and to admit it. I know some of you hear that point and you're like, thank you? Duh, like, thank you. But others of us need to hear this and take it to heart and be released from the crushing weight of pretending like we have it all together all the time. Faithfully following Christ does not require you to pretend like pain isn't painful. Faithfully following Jesus does not require you to play like you're unfazed by troubles. You can follow Christ faithfully and admit openly that you're not doing okay. We see that the psalmist, we see that the psalmist feels desperate. Look with me. Verse 1 opens as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. This is not the peaceful little water break of a watercolor painting. This is a ugly parched panting of real thirst and unmet longing. Verse 3, we get the sense that he's crying himself to sleep just to wake up and cry more in the morning. My tears have been my food day and night. And 
I love the poetry of the Psalms, so this one's not as easily seen in our English translations, but you know poetry can often convey emotion more somber than prose, and this is Hebrew poetry. There's a somber and biting poetic wordplay that happens in verse 4 and verse 7. Look with me. The word translated shouts in verse 4 is then the same word that's translated roar in verse 7. Then if you see the go of verse 4, how I would go with the throng, and the gone over of verse 7, all your breakers and waves have gone over me, those two are also, those two are the same word. So taken together, the somber and biting poetic reflection goes something like this. I used to pass with the, th- with the throng with glad sounds of praise, but now all I have is the sounds of breakers passing over me. Continuing on in the refrain, he repeatedly refers to his soul as cast down and at turmoil within himself. In 42.9, 43.2, we see he says, why do I go about mourning? 42.10, the taunts of the outsiders feel as a deadly wound in my bones, literally like a shattering of my bones. So the psalmist is not okay, and he's not afraid to cry out desperately, and nothing in the text tells us that he's unfaithful for doing so. You ever, you ever, have it, you ever find it hard to admit that you're struggling? It's, like, it's one thing to have the four-year conversation, right, that's like, hey, how are you? I'm doing well. Okay, I understand social pleasantries, kind of. Um, uh, there's a place for that, right? No problem. There's a place for that. But do you ever have a close friend, totally one-on-one, all the time in the world to talk about it? You say, how are you? They say, doing well. And you know full well that's not the case. Now, how about the other side of that? They say, how are you? Your mind thinks, I'm dying inside. And your mouth says, doing well. What is that? What is that? I know the feeling, okay? Some of the guys I've been in base group with, they know that I know the feeling, okay? You think, I don't want to be a burden. Galatians 6.2 tells us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How are we going to obey this if you aren't willing to unburden yourself? You don't have to unburden yourself to everybody, but you do need to unburden yourself to somebody. Christ's aim for his church is that we would be a community that carries one another's burdens Far be it from me to buck against that in my pride because I'm just not willing to admit that I'm not doing okay. It's okay to not be okay and to admit it. Our witness before the watching world is not that Christians don't experience suffering, okay? That's a false gospel for charlatans that want your money, okay? But it's the same one that we peddle if we're not willing to admit that we go through suffering, Our witness to the watching world is that like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Christ joins us in the fire of our suffering. Our witness is not that the reed is never bruised, but that a bruised reed he will not break. As Matt is fond of quoting, we're all needy and needed. 
both. We're all needy and needed. But more than just desperate, our psalmist also feels distant from God. Psalm 42 opens book two of the Psalms, and it seems to allude back to Psalm 1. In Psalm 1, we hear that the righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. But our man in Psalm 42 is panting for those flowing streams, longing for God himself. So pants my soul for you, O God, my soul thirsts for God. Right? Give me suffering and I can deal with it so long as God will stay near to me. And yet here he feels distant. He says, you're my rock. Why have you forgotten me? You're the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why does the taunt of the adversary feel like a shattering in his bones? It's because they're taunting him with the same question that he's asking himself. Where is your God? And yet, we get a glimpse that God is continuing to sustain him. In our second section, we see a progression in the psalmist as he remembers God even in a far-off land. And even while verse 7 cries out in the agony of the waterfalls, the breakers, and the waves that are beating him up, nonetheless, the psalmist recognizes these as coming from the sovereign hand of God. He calls them your waterfalls, your breakers, and your waves. And then again, with the poetic wordplay, we see a glimpse of God's sustaining grace in verse 8. We've already seen how the day and night language is used negatively as the tears came day and night and the taunts came all the day long. But in verse 8, the day-night language is poetically flipped. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Taken together, the parallel form there communicates not that the one thing happens at day and then the other at night, but that by day and night, God is continuing to uphold him. So as if to say, as the tears came day and night, so also the steadfast love of Yahweh came day and night. No doubt, if you've walked with Jesus for any time at all, you too have been through a dry period where it just felt like God was distant. Can I tell you something? You're there now. I know it feels like he's distant, but he's not far away. He upholds you even now. Second way this psalm should shape our impulses, it's okay to lament the absence of a good thing. He just wants to gather with the people of God in the presence of God. He wants to gather with God's people. That's what he's after. The thing that he wants is a good thing. When shall I come and appear before God? Verse 4, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. How he would go to worship, celebrate the festivals together with other people. Later, when he turns to his request in 43, 3-4, through what is it that he longs for? Let your light, your truth lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God. Look, he's not asking for luxury. He's not asking for some selfish comfort. He wants a good and right thing that he does not have. 
He just wants to worship faithfully at the temple. And uh, parenthetically, church, let us not take for granted the wonderful gift that it is to gather each Sunday with our church family. Rather, may we cherish it and come reap the full benefit of gathering with the people of God. Show up early, chat in the lobby, sing loud, listen to his word, sing again, stay after, find someone to encourage, invite someone to lunch, soak it all in. You didn't come to watch a performance this morning. You came to a family gathering of the people of God. Linger, cherish it, soak it all in. In parentheses, that one's free. The psalmist's desire is a good and healthy desire, right? A desire can become an idol when it occupies an inordinate place in our affections, but just longing for the good and right thing, just lamenting the circumstances, that's not inherently bad. Hear this if you need it this morning and be released. It's okay for you to lament. It's biblical. We have a book of the Bible called Lamentations, As Bob said earlier, at least a third of the psalms are psalms of lament. You can believe that God is sovereign and still experience sorrow. You can be reformed, but you're not a robot. Trusting in his providence does not mean that you have to shortchange the process. You don't have to think twice about feeling sorrow, even great sorrow over some loss. Lost loved one, even if they were a Christian, it's okay to lament. You're working a job that's really actually killing you, it's okay to lament. Personal betrayal, a bad diagnosis, family strife, addiction, financial strain, it's okay to lament. Sin struggles that you thought you'd be over by now, it's okay to lament. And more than just being okay and more than just being necessary, when you experience loss and you lament, it's actually a form of worship. In his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Mark Rogop says, Lament is rooted in what we believe. It's a prayer loaded with theology. Christians affirm that the world is broken, God is powerful, and he will be faithful. Therefore, lament stands in the gap between pain and promise. To cry is human, but to lament is Christian. When you lament under suffering, you proclaim, this is not the way it's supposed to be. When you cry out in pain, you proclaim, I'm not supposed to feel at home in this because this is not the way God intended the world to be. If you find yourself at turmoil because of a tough season of life, don't miss your opportunity to worship through lament as you process that gap between pain and promise. Again, from Frogop. You need to know that lament does not always lead to an immediate solution. It does not always bring a quick or timely answer. Grief is not tame. Lament is not a simplistic formula. Instead, lament is the song you sing, believing that one day God will answer and restore. Lament invites us to pray through our struggle with a life that is far from perfect. Uh, Christians do not grieve as those who have no hope. 
but we do grieve. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to lament the absence of a good thing. Third, it's okay to cry out to God with questions. A quick overview of the passage, and you'll see in the passage 10 questions. Two are from others being hurled at him. One he repeats three times over and directs at himself. One question he seems to just let fly off into the air. And then there are four questions that he directs at God himself. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Questions are inevitable, and questions at God are inevitable if we believe that he is sovereign. Because if he's sovereign, if he's indeed sovereign, he's permitting your circumstances. One minute you thought he was building something, and then in the blink of an eye, it seems that he, by his hand, has let it all come to ruin. Isn't that what Job said about the suffering that befell him? Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. If he's sovereign, if it is indeed the hand of the Lord at work, even in our suffering, who else are you going to go to with your questions? Job also says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. God can handle your questions, and it's even an act of faith to cry out to him, even with your most raw, angry, stinging, supposedly unbecoming questions. Even when your heart is bitter, take those questions to him. Lord, How does this bring you glory? Why won't you save my spouse? God, why won't you give us children? Why have you let my child walk away from you? Why won't you take this from me? And for those of us, side note, for those of us walking alongside suffering, The best answer for those kinds of what is God doing questions is usually I don't know coupled together with the ministry of presence. You don't know the mind of God, so we should not attempt to. In the end, even while it provokes questions, the fact that our good God remains in control even through our darkest circumstances is actually an encouraging truth. Fourth, it's okay to ask God to change your circumstances. As the psalmist progresses here into chapter 43, we see him bring his requests before God. In 43.1, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause. Against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. And on down to verse 3, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Uh, I'm not going to belabor this point. Even while we know that God uses trials to sanctify us, it's still okay for, 
for it to ask him to remove it? Even though we know he can make us content in all circumstances, it's still okay for you to ask him to change your circumstances. Fifth and final way this psalm should shape our impulses. Even in the time when we're not okay, even while we are lamenting, even while we are crying out to God with questions, even while we are asking him to change our circumstances, we must fight to fix our hope on God. The main theme of this psalm is in the refrain, right? It's like the chorus of a song that gets sung over and over again, telling you the main point of the psalm, main point of the passage. And in that refrain, we find a compass orienting ourselves in our own suffering. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. First, Note where the question is directed, at himself. He says, oh my soul. And this is not soul in the later Greek idea of the non-biblical sense of a non-material part of you. In the Hebrew sense, soul is all of me. Which is why in 42.1, the soul pants. And in the other verse, it thirsts, my soul thirsts. His questions are directed at himself. He is the object of his own interrogation. Our psalmist is not, listen, our psalmist is not content to just passively let the tape of his own thoughts roll. He's not content to simply wallow in the accusations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Rather, he's talking back to them. How often are you your biggest accuser? How often is your self-doubt way out of proportion from reality? Especially when we're downcast and depressed, right? When the dark cloud settles over us and the graying lens of depression is how we look out onto the world, we don't have the most accurate vantage point. Right? The always and the nevers come out with the no ones and the everyone's. I'm always going to be like this. Things never go right for me. No one even notices. Everyone just looks at me like I'm blank. And then we just marinate in that darkness that produces more darkness and continues to snowball. But oh, church, may the word of Christ Dwell in you so richly that you learn how to speak truth to your soul even at your darkest hour. And when your hour is so dark that the muck of this life prevents you from seeing anything, I hope that you're surrounded by others in your life that will speak truth to you when you can't. But the reality is having those kinds of relationships then requires you to develop those kinds of relationships now. That's going to take more than a couple hours each Sunday. Invest in those now so someone knows you when you need them. Uh, I can remember a time where uh, I wasn't doing well, and uh, I said my base group might laugh because, uh, or guys that have been in base group with me might laugh because they know that I'm not always easy to be like, yeah, I'm not doing well. Um, and a particular time they said, hey, how are you doing? I'm fine, leave me alone, okay? And they, knowing me well, 
said, uh, you need to get together and talk about it? Nope, I need you to leave me alone. Okay, there's my wall, I need you to leave me alone. Okay, and so I'm, pedaling, I'm like pedaling around in my garage and someone from my base group shows up, first man through the door, didn't, didn't, didn't really go well for him, but um, uh, then another, I'm like, why are you here? I told you don't come, right? Uh, then another one, and then another one, and uh, then we ate, went and ate chicken wings and talked about it. Here's the deal. Boundaries are one thing and whatever. I hope you have people that know you well enough to know when those kinds of like boundaries that you're putting up are garbage and they just need to get through to you. I hope you have people in your life that know you well enough that they can push through those and say, you think you need this, but what you actually need is this. Church, when the big, dark times come, and even when the week-to-week anxieties just start to build, do not be content to just let the record play. Speak back with the truth of God's word. He asks, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? We know why he's down. We've already said that that was a valid reason. And yet he's calling himself to remember that even in light of those circumstances, there is reason for great hope in God. His sermon to himself then takes on a command, hope in God. Call yourself to hope in God. Notice this is not the empty, baseless, wishful thinking of positive thinking. This is not looking in the mirror, saying, you can do it, you've got this, this is tough, but so are you. No, no, no. This is a calling to mind of the truth based in the goodness of God and the power of God. He's not merely deflecting his mind away from the problem in order to, figure, to, in order to forget about the problem. He's filling his mind with the reality of God who is bigger than the problem. And he's casting himself fully on the goodness of God, optimistic that God will work out his plan for the psalmist's good. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. When we can't fathom why he would allow such things, we can trust in his character. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. Psalm 94 If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slipped, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. And of course, the words of Jesus, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Here today, and you're not a believer, First off, I'm glad that you're here. Second, and I say this lovingly, I don't know what you have to put your hope in. Yourself, no better than that. Humanity, come on. Progress, For all our technological advances and all our supposed progress, when you stand at the casket of a loved one, you know deep down that something more is going on than just the end of a biological process. 
Moments of great pain are haunted with meaning in a way that shows the cracks of that secular outlook as we realize that life is shot through with weight. When you find yourself racked with pain and you think life isn't supposed to be like this, why? Why isn't it? I agree. What's your basis for saying that? So I don't know where you can put your hope in time of trouble. Trust in money, run to more distractions to just turn your brain off and not think about it. Some other coping mechanism? I don't know. If you're here today and that's you, understand that's not meant as a shot at you. That's meant lovingly as a shot at your empty worldview in order to call you out of it and into something far greater. All I've got to offer you is this, trust in Christ. Every other well will run dry. Run to him in faith as the only rock worthy for you to put your hope in. And look, if that's you today, I'm not here to just use this as a bully pulpit to throw out shots in a room where I know everyone's going to agree with me. If that's you, let's, let's talk. I'd love to chat. But if you're here today and you're a believer, you have reason for great hope. He has lavished such great resources on you in the gospel that you don't have to go running to any other inferior form of coping. You can hope in the fact that you have a suffering Savior who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. A Savior who cried out similarly in the Garden of Gethsemane. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And he cried out similarly from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he took God's wrath on himself for the sins of you and I so that he could restore us to right relationship to God and so that he could reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. We know that God created the world and called it good, but that sin has wreaked havoc on the world so that it's not how it's supposed to be. But we know also that God is bringing about the reconciliation of all things through the death and resurrection of Christ, who now sits at the right hand of God, having put all things in subjection under his feet. He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. If you're a believer walking through suffering this morning, you can rejoice in the fact that this is the closest to hell you'll ever, ever get. You can hope in a Savior who promises living water to us as we pant and thirst in the sufferings of this life. And one day he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. And on that day, he will reward the thirsty with the spring of the water of life without payment. And we will have the river of the water of life running right through and no longer will there be anything accursed by the fall. That is cause for great hope as we endure the very real storms of this life. You don't have to run to anything else to cope. Stake your life on that. I close with this. 
as the psalmist comes out fighting, calling himself to hope in God, once was not enough, nor twice, but he does so three times. We see in that the need to constantly call ourselves to trust in the goodness of God. To church, even when you can't see it, hope in Christ. Even when it feels inauthentic, hope in Christ. When you feel like you just can't, hope in Christ. When you want to run to some other inferior coping mechanism, hope in Christ. When you feel dumb and foolish, continuing to bank your life on this, when you see absolutely no movement, continue to hope in Christ. In your worst, darkest days, hope in Christ. And then when you lose sight of him, call yourself again to hope in Christ. And then, even when you lose sight of him, yet again, call yourself to hope in Christ. And then, get out of bed, have your morning coffee, and resolve all the day long, no matter how many times you lose sight of it, and have to remind yourself, hope in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, God, we thank you for the way that your word does speak so directly to the realities of our life. God, we thank you that uh, we don't have to make your word relevant, but God, we just have to study it and see it's all the, the relevance that's already there. Father, for any of us that are here today and are experiencing suffering, I pray that your grace, your hand, your truth, would sustain them, strengthen their hands, even right now, to just get through this upcoming week. And God, I do pray that you would continue to make us into a kind of church family that carries each other's burdens well, that carries each other's burdens even when it costs something, that, carries, that speaks truth even when it's difficult, that sits with the suffering even when it's uncomfortable. Lord, I pray that you continue to make us into that kind of body. And God, I do pray that we would take this message of hope to those that don't know you so that they could be liberated by trusting in you for all that they need. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.